Welcome to Alumni College, Classes Without Quizzes. This class, What the Iliad Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution, is taught by Dr. Michael Fisher. Michael Fisher is Janet S. Dickey Professor in Public Humanities in the Department of English. After serving for 16 years in various administrative positions at Trinity, including Vice President for Faculty and Student Affairs and Interim President, Michael Fisher began full-time teaching in the English Department in 2017 and 2018. His research and teaching focus on English Romanticism, the history of ideas about literature and philosophy, and defenses of the humanity. In several essays and a book in progress, he's currently exploring the role literature and the arts can play in constructive conflict resolution. Professor Fisher received his Ph.D. from Northwestern University. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fisher. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me okay? Uh, I should tell you that I have a class at uh, 11.30, so I'm going to have to skip out of here on time. But if you have any other questions you might want to ask, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch with me later by email, and I'll also be around this afternoon. And when I told my class that I was giving this talk at a what, what, what was called uh, classes without quizzes, they kind of perked up and said, that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> and I said, well, you've got to graduate first. Uh, and uh, so I gave them a little incentive to stay with it. Well, my uh, this is talk is about conflict resolution and what uh, one of the great books of Western literature, the Iliad, can teach us about that. And my interest in conflict resolution grows out of my work as a university administrator. Uh, early on, I discovered that many of the issues that came to me as an administrator reached me because they hadn't been resolved elsewhere in the university. And the reason they hadn't been resolved elsewhere in the university is that people disagreed uh, often strongly about what should be done, and that's why I got the issue. So that meant that on any given day, uh, I, was, I felt I was immersed in conflict. And I even one time wrote an article called Stuck in the Middle Again, which we, I tried to capture the feeling of between being between a rock and a hard place uh, that for me often characterized my work as a university uh, administrator. So in dealing with disagreements within the university, I was always struck by how conflict can trigger anxiety and uncertainty even under the best of circumstances. And what I mean by that, by the best of circumstances, I mean conversations that are civil, free of yelling, verbal attacks, and threats. So take it from me, uh, academic deliberations can uh, take a really long time, uh, and they have their moments of drama, but I think you would be proud to see how faculty, staff, and students conduct their discussions uh, here at Trinity. It's a great deal of mutual uh, respect, but even so, Engaging in conflict, even under these circumstances, can be stressful. I'm interested in the stress that conflict can induce because when taken to extreme, that stress can provoke what I would call a fight-or-flight reaction. Either someone disengaging from the conflict altogether or counterattacking. Uh, in, in particular, extreme polarization in a dispute is like a pressure cooker that intensifies the tension conflict can often occasion. When individuals or groups regard one another as mortal enemies, 
Dialogue seems futile, maybe even dangerous. Shutting down or striking back becomes especially tempting. Both disengaging and bullying undermine constructive conflict resolution, whether in the workplace or in a political debate. And I mention politics because for me, an essential feature of democracy is deliberation, by which I mean citizens and their elected representatives arriving at decisions together while serving on juries, school boards, city councils, legislatures, and many other settings. In these dis deliberations, disagreement is a steady state because democracies ideally encourage a proliferation of different points of view. So my ideal of democracy, which extends from my ideal of a vibrant workplace, my ideal of democracy involves people sharing the world with people who differ from them and benefiting from relationships that encourage questioning and dissent. I acknowledge that I'm offering an ideal that in practice often breaks down. These breakdowns can be extremely damaging. To be sustainable, a democracy has to build widespread confidence in the capacity of citizens to get things done together and solve problems on their own in ways that are recognized to be fair and just. When that doesn't happen, when disagreement degenerates into discord and gridlock, it tempts people either to withdraw or to look for other non-democratic ways of achieving their political goals. And these ways all too often include attraction to authoritarian leaders who promise to circumvent these stalled democratic processes and get things done. So to sum up, this, I've been trying to sketch what's at stake here and what my ideal is. Whether in the workplace or in politics, my ideal in dispute resolution is for people to feel free to make their case, stay true to their convictions, and maintain a relationship with the people they're disagreeing with. A relationship that may include their continuing to talk to one another about their differences. The idea that relationships can coexist with disagreement and even benefit from disagreement is for me especially important to a healthy workplace as well as a healthy democracy. I would also say that ideal is probably uh, important to personal relationships like friendships and uh, marriage. And my own example here is that my wife and I uh, this past summer celebrated our 43rd uh, wedding anniversary, uh, and we spent much of the day disagreeing about what we we're going to do. Uh, and we've never been happier. <laughs> so now for help with conflict resolution, I want to turn to an unlikely source, and that is three scenes from Homer's text, The Iliad, which is an unlikely source for this subject because it's one of the great war poems of all literature. I teach the Iliad regularly in Huma, uh, and Huma, as you may remember, is a uh, first, it's for first, first semester, first year students, uh, and in this great course, these students sit around and read, discuss, and write about the epics of Homer and Virgil, the tragedies of Aeschylus and Euripides, the dialogues of Plato, and other challenging works, and to get a feel for Huma 
picture of 14 students, their first semester of college, not all that much time separated from high school, with all kinds of majors and interests sitting around this table with me discussing these great works of literature. And that happens to be, by the way, the class that I'm going to uh, at 1130. So the translation, I'll start with the first thing. The translation of the Iliad that, that we use in humor begins with the word rage. And anger is everywhere present in this opening scene, which bristles with the two main characters, the great warrior Achilles and his commander Agamemnon, trading insults and blaming one, of them, one another right in the middle of the Trojan War. Achilles is especially outraged that Agamemnon, in front of the assembled troops, has taken from him the prize he won in battle. He's furious. Achilles is so furious that he's tempted to, he, he starts to draw his sword to strike back at Agamemnon, but uh, a, the goddess Athena intervenes and calms him down a little, but he nevertheless says, I, from this point on, am not going to fight in this war. It's intolerable what has just happened to me, and I'm not going to fight, and I hope that when the, my fellow Greeks see the casualties that amount, that, that come up in the, my absence from the war, because he is their best fighter, I hope they're going to see Agamemnon for what he calls the sorry, sorry profiteering excuse for a commander that Achilles thinks he is. And the important point here is that, he's pre that these casualties Achilles is predicting, he welcomes. They're not just a byproduct of his decision, they're his leverage that he is using against Agamemnon. So, this opening scene illustrates a worst-case scenario of conflict resolution. We've got two individuals consumed in a power struggle, angrily exchanging ultimatums, threats, and insults with little regard for the impact of their argument on anybody else. I, rem I remind my students to keep this scene in mind because in a few weeks we're going to read the Orsaya, which uh, talks about the development of trial by jury as a more promising way of resolving disputes than this one. But in the Iliad, we're not there yet in this opening scene. We're still in the throes of this fight to the finish that democratic institutions will later try to overcome. So now let's go to the second scene, a second scene from the Iliad. It's later in the poem, and Achilles' strategy of staying out of the war in the hopes that casualties will begin to occur, it's working. Some leaders approach Agamemnon, and they say, you've got to make amends with Achilles, and possibly to their surprise, Achilles, uh, Agamemnon says, okay, I will. Uh, and I, here's some things I want you to take and offer Achilles. It's a long list of items that these leaders are, uh, are allowed to uh, bring to Achilles in the hope of getting him back to uh, participating in the war. Well, what happens is that you can just imagine how excited these, these, these three leaders are. They've gotten something worked out with Agamemnon who maybe didn't think was going to agree to it, and now they're with great expectation and anxiety, they're bringing it to Achilles, hoping that 
he'll relent and they can resume winning the war. And I can just picture the tension and, uh, and nervousness and sort of adrenaline going through them as they just, they just finished something with one pretty unreasonable person. Now they're about to try it out uh, with another. And uh, to me, it always re reminds me of planning a wedding. Uh, but if, if you've ever been in that situation where it's high stakes negotiation and people's feelings are running very high, here's what happens. They present the offer. Achilles listens to it, and he says, no, I'm not going to do it. He could offer me everything in the world. I'm not going to do it. Uh, his gifts mean nothing to me. And he, he concludes, I won't lift a finger in this bloody war. And one of the people who have made the offer says to him, Achilles, you are cruel. You're pitiless. You have no regard for your fellow Greeks, no regard for us, your friends. We're done with you. So in my class, I don't ask my students whose side they're on. Are they on the side of Achilles or the people who have unsuccessfully made him this offer? But what I do is I ask them to do justice to each person's point of view. And that means to listen, including what each person thinks of the other. And that includes things like listening carefully to their speeches, reading closely what they say, and also uh, trying to do inhabit these very different points of view. And you know, I think you would be very surprised and impressed and pleased by how our students at Trinity, how they bring up larger questions in this uh, exercise, how they ask themselves, well, when when is it this, this, uh, what Achilles is doing, refusing the offer somebody has made to you? When does that indicate stubbornness and, and selfishness and cruelty? Or when does it indicate admirably standing on principle? When is it uh, uh, advisable to compromise? When is it better to hold your ground? These are very important questions, and I think you'd be, you'd be so proud of how our students thoughtfully discuss these questions and how respectfully they work out their own differences of opinion with one another. And sometimes I think that how students discuss questions like these in our small classes that we're fortunate to have at Trinity, how they discuss these, maybe will stick with them, believe it or not, even longer than my own interpretation of the earlier. And I think these, this experience of working these things out together is a valuable lesson in general of how people can work out things uh, with one another. And for me, uh, this is how great works of literature enrich our lives. Uh, it's not by giving us all the answers, but by motivating us to ask key questions like these, questions that keep our responses to the world fresh and open to the contributions of others. The last scene of the Iliad is my third and final scene of the Iliad. Here's what's happened. Achilles has re-entered the war, not because he's changed his mind about Agamemnon, but because he is wanting to avenge the death of his closest friend, Patroclus, who's been killed by Hector. That's what's motivating him, and... He is determined to get revenge, and he's, he's killed Hector, but it's not, it hasn't bought him the, the satisfaction that he hoped it would bring. So in the final book, Achilles 
who's just killed Hector is brought together with Priam, Hector's father. And you've got to set the scene here. These are two people who have every reason to hate each other. That man's son killed my best friend. That man killed my son. You, the, 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 the depth of an antagonism between these two has given them every reason to blame one another, fight viciously with one another, seek revenge one more time. So it makes that opening scene look like a little spat uh, by comparison, comparing to what's happening here. So at the, the opening of the scene, both Hector, I'm sorry, both uh, uh, Priam and uh, Agamemnon, uh, Priam and Achilles, they're stuck in their sense of loss and grief. Neither one of them is getting out of, of, of their lives what they want. Uh, they are they're just stuck. They're unable to move forward. Uh, they're seeking something that they're not finding. Uh, and so the mother of Achilles visits him and says, basically, why don't you just give up right at this point? Quit seeking revenge. Release Hector's body, who he's been trying to desecrate the corpse of Hector. Release his body to the Trojans and try to move on. Somebody visits Priam and says to him, go see Achilles and see if you can get the body that uh, you, you want so you can give him a proper funeral. So as Priam gets ready to do this, his wife says, you are nuts to think that you should go visit this guy and negotiate with him. He, if I had my way, she says, in this really uh, powerful passage, I could rip Achilles' liver bleeding from his guts and eat it whole. That would be at last be some vengeance for me. And I bet, you know, he'll want to do the same to you. This is crazy for you two to get together. In the amazing final scene, Priam enters, unnoticed by Achilles, and he kisses his hands. Achilles startled. And, said, and, and Prime says, Achilles, remember your father. He and I are at the end of our lives, and in addition, I've lost my son. He says to him further, he says, think of all we both have lost, and think of what we are suffering together. I'm paraphrasing this great language, which is much more eloquent than I'm making it out here. And there's this extraordinary moment of fellow feeling between the two. They both suddenly pause. They hold one another. They start to cry. And the sound of their weeping fills up the room as they sit there, Homer says, moaning for their losses and sharing in their losses and recognizing something in one another. So sharing their grief with one another allows these two to see each other in a new light no longer is Trojan and Greek, but is two vulnerable individuals joined in shared sorrow and mutual respect. They go on to uh, do what they've been putting off. Uh, they, they eat, they sleep, they, they re-engage with life as a result of this. And so that when uh, uh, Priam asks Achilles at the end, at the very end, he says, 
can I take Hector's body back for a funeral? And Achilles says, how many days do you need for this? This would be a truce in the war. And Priam says, I need 11 days. Achilles goes, done. Consider it done. So my conclusion is, what accounts for this reconciliation achieved in this final scene? Why is it so different from the first scene? Well, some of this, my students will always cite the influence of the gods uh, who intervene and do play a role in bringing these two together. But I try to point out that the gods don't force the action here. They don't force Achilles and Priam to set aside their longing for revenge. I see the gods giving Achilles and Priam permission to act on generous impulses that I think they already feel. And these generous impulses are in tension with the doubts and fears that have been holding them uh, hostage. In other words, these gods help these bitter enemies release the goodwill that's been bottled up inside themselves, release it from the anger, the suspicion and fear that's kept them stuck. So here's my final point. I think the role played by the gods in Delia, the role of helping these, these two bitter enemies, giving them permission to release what I say is the good in themselves. I say that the role assigned by the gods in the Iliad is a role I credit to the Iliad itself and other great works of literature. And the work that I'm doing right now, I'm making the argument that I think great works of literature can foster the, as well as the other humanities, uh, can foster the openness to the needs of others that's essential to constructive conflict resolution. And I would argue healthy democracies. And so in this final scene, you see Achilles and Priam exemplifying four keys to working through conflict. One, a recept receptivity to compromise. Two, a willingness to extend forgiveness. Three, an openness to empathy. I see you, Priam, as I see my father. I know your pain. Uh, that you must be feeling. And then finally, a commitment to reciprocity, by which I mean a commitment to uh, uh, allow granting people the same good intentions and needs that you claim for yourself. So the opening scene of the Iliad shows how conflict can bring out the worst in people. But the final book shows how conflict can be, uh, bring out the best. And I think we're at our best when we're generous toward others, receptive to their interests, and open to trusting and forgiving them. And I would say these are the better angels of our nature, that great works of literature develop and democratic conflict resolution depends on.